All right, man. Good morning. It's so good to be together again. And uh, these studies, they, they certainly have been the deeper waters as we've been talking about the importance of the sovereignty of God and understanding his perfections, um, in particular, his, his control of all things, his preservation of all things, his sovereign, his meticulous sovereign work in and through all things. The scriptures are unequivocal on this topic. No matter what we might think about it in our immaturity and our need to grow, no matter how we might assess it in our logic and reasoning, we always come back to faith. Everything comes back to our submission to God in faith. Uh, we believe, therefore we see. We believe, therefore, we speak these things because they are true. Uh, and the Word of God doesn't, doesn't get judged by man. It sits in judgment upon man. We, by nature, are fallen. And the effects of it on our minds are that we are defiled, darkened in our understanding until we come to bow the knee to revelation, special revelation in Scripture. So when we come to hard truths, and we try to think our way through, well, then how are we to understand this as taught in the Bible, especially as it relates to God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and moral agency? We bow the knee first. We come to the scriptures to understand what God says about these things. And when we try to think through how we are to grasp the depths of it, it, it is to produce humility in us, not intellectual pride. It is to produce submissiveness in us, not skepticism and unbelief. And so last time we were talking about the fact that in God's meticulous sovereign ordaining of all things, uh, questions are raised about the reality of evil. And uh, we experience evil. We are born with the taste of it in our mouth. By nature, we're children of wrath because we are born corrupted. Evil does exist. We know that. We acknowledge that. The Bible has a lot to say about not only uh, the nature of evil, but, but the aspects of it, the natural course of evil, the fallen world in which natural evil occurs and, and the effects of it. But then moral evil, human beings doing evil things perpetrating evil upon others and causing harm and suffering. And we've looked at those dynamics, not just because they are familiar to us in our existence, but because God's Word has a lot to say about it. But then questions come to our mind. It's God is meticulously sovereign and evil exists. Then in what sense uh, can he say that no evil touches him. Evil does not emanate from him in the, in the ontological sense. It's not intrinsic to who he is. He is absolutely holy. Then how are we to understand what evil is and, and how it fits into his grand ordained plan, which we know and have studied extensively, is being worked out according to the counsel of his will, which is perfect. So his perfect ultimate will must include the ordination of those things. But to what end, to what purpose? And last time I, I introduced to you the, 
the issue of the glory of God as it relates to this problem in our understanding, God's meticulous sovereignty and the existence of bad things, the existence of fallenness, the existence of evil. And of course, Scott Christensen in his volume I referenced last time, which is really a defense of God's sovereign glory as it relates to the existence of evil. I said to you last time that he coined this term, the greater glory theodicy, the greater glory theodicy. That is to say, last time I I told you that theodicy is just a compound term. It's really the defense of God with respect to evil. Uh, How is God justifiable in the existence of evil when he himself is holy? So Scott Christensen describes the greater glory theodicy as, as that aspect of our understanding that says that the glory of God is the ultimate goal toward which God moves. The reflection of his perfections, his person, his character in everything that he has created. Not that he had to create, he's self-sufficient and self-existent in himself, self-satisfied but ordained to create because he, in his grand plan for his glory, wanted to, desires to, purposes to reflect who he is in and through all he's created, in all of his perfections. Said this way then, God's ultimate purpose in freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to all his creatures, and especially to human beings who are made in his image. No other creature bears the image of God, just his, just humans, his special creation. Christensen goes on to say God's glory is supremely magnified in the atoning work of Christ, which is the sole means of accomplishing redemption for human beings. And so redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin and therefore the fall of humanity is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in creating the world. That is essential at the bottom of all of our understanding. That reality is essential. Redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin. And since God's glory is supremely magnified through his work of redemption in Christ, and since his whole goal is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to all his creatures, but particularly human beings having been made in his image, then therefore the fall of humanity works in that direction, works to that end. Now, this is essentially what Paul said in Romans 11. Let's go back and refresh our thoughts for a moment and grasp the strength of this this explosive moment of worship on the part of the Apostle Paul. Verse 36 is the biblical way of saying what Christensen is trying to describe. Romans 11, 36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. And so to him be the glory forever. Amen. From him, that is to say, 
God is the creator and therefore everything emanates from him in that ultimate glory sense. Through him, that is to say, as we studied, he's the sustainer of all of it. And to him, the ultimate goal is toward everything he purposes for the ultimate goal of the reflection of all that he is. Therefore, in all things, it is right to say to him be the glory forever. That's correct. Everything is for him and toward the end that he would be reflected in everything that he has made. Now notice just before verse 36 that the apostle Paul sets himself in relationship to it in a way that humbles the believer and is important for us to note. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that they are deep and how unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That is to say, as his creatures, though made in his image, the depths of his purposes as it relates to what will be reflected in his character and his person, the depths of it are to us unplumbable and inexhaustible. They're not fully able to be searched out for they are infinite. Sometimes people think about heaven and being there as, as a place that, that is required to stimulate us throughout all eternity in a way that makes it worth staying there. That's kind of how our finite minds work. People will say, what's it going to be like? And what, what is behind the question sometimes is not just what does the Bible say heaven is like, but what is it about it that compels us to want it? That's the question that comes up in the finite mind. And yet here in this text, with respect to our God, Paul admits that God, he admits what the prophet Isaiah had said in Isaiah 55, your ways and your thoughts are higher than ours. It's like Psalm 139 when the psalmist says, these things are too marvelous for me, I cannot attain them, I can't apprehend them. I can't comprehend them in a way that, that would be able to be processed alone by me. Paul essentially says the same thing here. The wisdom and knowledge of God, it's an interesting phrase. It, it could mean uh, sort of a, a collective idea here rather than separated out, but either way, the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge are unsearchable, his judgments, that is to say what he's determined, what he's ordained, all things he is working out, the way he works them out, the intricate and meticulous outworkings of everything that we see going on around us, everything we know in our existence, everything he's revealed in special revelation about why it exists and its meaning and its course and its outcome and consummation, all of it his judgments are unfathomable. They're unfathomable. That is the right perspective for us to have. Why? Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Who, who could, as a finite creature, 
understand completely the infinite mind of God. We talked several weeks ago, uh, we searched the scriptures several weeks ago about his knowledge, how infinite his knowledge, and we were brought back to such a verse, a passage. Who became his counselor? In what sense could he receive counsel from his finite beings that would add to him, that would augment anything about his infiniteness or his knowledge. This is what Paul is acknowledging. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Is there something that he didn't know that you brought to his attention? Is there something that you figured out through some finite means in your being made in the image of God that would somehow be brought to him and augment the person of God? Again, Paul is putting himself and all of us in the right place. This is essentially what he meant when he told the church in Rome, in Romans 12, Romans 12, 3, let no one think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. What is sound judgment? It's right here. Unsearchable are the ways of God. Unfathomable are his ways, and his judgments cannot be exhausted because you cannot know the mind of the infinite God. You cannot become his counselor. There's nothing you could bring to him that would add something he did not know nor purpose, something that would de demonstrate that he is not who he, re he has revealed himself to be. No wonder then Paul in that explanatory final statement says, because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And there is the final statement that rounds out this theodicy that we've been dealing with. To him be glory forever. Everything is for the magnification of his glory. And make no mistake, the passion God has for his glory is a perfect passion. It is an unassailable passion. That is to say, it will happen. It cannot be diminished in any way in, in its expression nor its power. He will be reflected in all of his perfections. And it cannot be otherwise. This is why Peter refers to it when he refers to what he saw on the mountain. You remember when he and James and John were taken up to the mountain and the Lord Jesus Christ pulled back the veil of his flesh and the glory of his deity shone through his human flesh and they were all on their faces on the ground and he was... He was affirmed by the Father audibly. They heard it. They saw the glory and the reflection. It was affirmed by the prophets, uh, Moses and Elijah being on the mountain there. All of that connects, connects Peter, James, and John and the experience of Christ with those prophets who spoke with God face to face and spoke for God in those remarkable ways. The Old Testament Revelation of God was on the mountain with them. The New Testament 
explanation of God in the person of Christ and his glory was on the mountain with them. The audible voice of the Father affirmed him there in the experience. And what does Peter call it in 2 Peter 1.17? The majestic glory. It's the majestic glory. That's what he calls it. It is the perfections of God that are defined as his majesty. His majesty, who he is. Now, the reason that's important for us is because you remember last time we were thinking through how evil affects our lives and how we think about it. And the first order of business in the Christian's life is to remember that what God reveals about himself obligates his people to bow to it, right? What does Hebrews 11, 6 say? Apart from faith or without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That is to say that he exists and he exists as whom he has revealed himself to be. So whatever God says about himself in special revelation and makes known to his people by granting us eyes to know it and believe it, there's no way to know it and believe it apart from bowing to it. That is why the writer of Hebrews says what he says, apart from faith. What is faith? It is belief. It is, it is not you and I putting God on trial to force him to prove himself to us before we will accept him. That would make us God. That would make us as high as him or higher. That would mean that we, we don't have a fallen corrupt nature that suppresses the knowledge of our creator as the Bible has revealed. We would be coming to him as if in a position of neutrality. I'm neutral, you say some things about yourself, well I have the right from a neutral position to evaluate it, to put you on trial, to say what's true or not, and you better prove it, you better demonstrate it. <clears throat> See that isn't humility, that isn't an acknowledgement that we're fallen, and finite, but apart from faith, therefore, no one can know this God who reveals himself. For he who comes to God must believe that he is who he says he is, which is to say faith submits then to the revelation of God. So that's the first thing that we had to understand when we look at evil and say why. We must remember God alone tells us why these things are so. And the second thing we talked about was that we're limited to God's revelation about it. What God reveals in his word is what he reveals. In our um, desire to push past boundaries we know nothing about because God's judgments are unfathomable, when you want to push past his special revelation, it is folly in the heart. It is skepticism. It's unbelief. It isn't a neutral desire to discover. It's not innocent. When you want to push past the scriptures, know this, it is because you are sour about something God has revealed. It is because you don't like 
that he's revealed whom he is. You don't want to believe it in a corner of your heart. You would rather find some other explanation, some other justification. When we talk about defending the faith, that's precisely what we're talking about. Everything in the defense of our faith begins with God's revelation, his special revelation. We don't come to it and demand that it solve our philosophical or ethical dilemmas, moral responsibility and God's sovereignty. That is not an ethical dilemma or a moral issue to resolve philosophically. If we're left with philosophy, we're essentially saying we're left with our own logic and our own reasoning outside of special revelation, which God himself has told us is fallen. Every single time we will not believe God because apart from faith, apart from accepting that he is who he says he is by his own revelation, you cannot please God. You cannot know him, you cannot please him, you cannot understand him. Furthermore, Hebrews eleven six also says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice the emphasis in Hebrews 11.6. You must believe that he is a rewarder. Not your intellect, not your pursuit of philosophy, not your ability to answer questions or defend the faith, not your apologetic. That doesn't reward you. It's very interesting to me that any apologetical system that that wants to use philosophical answer, questions and answers and dilemmas and solutions as an outside way of evaluating God or his existence. It's interesting to me that this passage here destroys that approach because it says here that none of those things are the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is the rewarder. So he who comes to God must believe, notice that, not reason. Your belief is rooted in your ability to reason, but you must believe because the heart is fallen and your moral uh, fallenness will suppress the knowledge of God. In fact, until you actually believe God, it is in an active 24-7 attempt to suppress what your conscience and your inner man knows is true. Romans 1 says this. You're a suppressor apart from faith. We are all hopelessly suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And the more you know of the attributes of God by what you see and examine around you in, in natural theology, we might say, or general revelation would be the better term. And then whatever you learn from Scripture, because some Christian tells you about it, or you hear a sermon, or you hear a truth spoken somewhere that is a biblical truth and it's made its way down to your ears, you are, apart from faith, in a 24-hour attempt to further suppress it in further unrighteousness. That is who we are apart from faith. So it won't be your philosophy and answers to philosophical questions that rewards you 
in seeking God. It won't be your ability to solve apologetical dilemmas in defending God in some philosophical framework outside of Scripture that rewards you. It is God who rewards the diligent seeker. That is why you must approach him in faith. We saw that last time when we were talking about the problem of evil, because if it is true, and Scripture reveals that it is, and we've seen that over and over, that God has an ordained ultimate will that he says is from him and through him and to him for the reflection of his glory, then it must include fallenness. It must include the suffering and evil that goes on for a greater glorious reflection of his majesty. It must. And when a fallen human being challenges that, and uses it as a means of suppressing the knowledge of God. He doesn't exist. How could God exist? I won't worship a God who allows that. I don't want to worship a God who, who, who doesn't correct all these things. When someone says those things, then you do not have to imagine that somehow they've missed some key philosophical and logical arguments, and you have to bring them up. That they just haven't seen enough evidence for God that they just haven't had their honest skepticism reasoned out wisely. You don't have to imagine that. You know full well that they are trying to suppress truth because they don't want to believe. They don't yet have their heart humbled in conviction about their lost condition. You know that. And you, as a believer, know then that because you already know that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and that apart from faith you cannot please God, you know then that Revelation takes us to this ultimate greater glory purpose, and we accept that then even though we exist in a world that's fallen and has natural and moral evil that affects our lives. So there is this bottom end, this equilibrium, this coursing through our understanding that comes to us by faith because God has revealed it in special revelation. There is a greater glory purpose for all these things that occur. Now we might say, when we say things like that, that is the transcendence that you see in Scripture. Those are the the truths that pull us out of the everyday nearness of those sufferings and afflictions and give us truth that, that God does not change. He, there's glory in all of it. He works all of this after the counsel of his own will for his majestic glory, and his people are called to believe that, to ground themselves in it, to be comforted by it, to understand that that drives us to truth, not away from it. It drives us to dependence and humility, not away from it. But it is also true that there's a, an eminence or a nearness, eminence being spelled I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, eminence, the nearness of God. There's a nearness 
in our walk with God that the Bible doesn't deny either. In other words, it's not as though when evil happens, you, you don't see it for what it is. It is against God. It is inherently, morally against God. And it must therefore be dealt with in a way that comes to the majestic glory, that promotes the majestic glory, that brings God and reflects God's ultimate glory. It must. How he reveals that he does that is, as we've been discovering, spoken of in places in Scripture. But in our skeptical hearts, if, if we are reading passages like that, that God has ordained all of these things for our good, working all things for our good, we start to make skeptical comparisons on the one hand because we're not, we're not liking the fact that that doesn't solve a philosophical question that our flesh dredges up. And so it requires humility and faith to accept that revelation only goes so far. And you remember, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So if he gave us all those thoughts, it wouldn't make sense to us anyway, as we've seen. He, he is not going to leave us without answers, but he's going to keep from us those answers that are unfathomable to us. Of course he would. What sense would it make for us to, to read things we could not understand ever or, or grasp in our finiteness? God made us. He knows what we need. He knows what sustains us. He knows how to give us truth that will be everything pertaining to life and godliness that we need through his magnificent promises, 2 Peter 1. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, he also reveals how he sees evil and what he does with evil and the fact that it's evil and that he's going to punish evil and all these things will be made right because God will never let a sin go unpunished. He is just. He is a God of infinite holiness. If it's going to reflect his character and there is evil that exists in his creation, then it's going to have to reflect his judgment of such things that would go against who he is morally, of course. And so the Bible also reveals that. So we don't, we don't ignore revelation on one side in order to exalt revelation on another. We're not merely living in the transcendence of God's majestic, glorious purposes. We're not merely accepting the high altitude of a greater glory theodicy. We actually also live in the nearness and involvement with that evil world. And so we have to take in his revelation about what he thinks about that and what we're supposed to do with that. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, now you sort of see how we come to passages like this, and instead of quoting them in a vacuum, we come to passages like Romans 8, and, and we see now what God intends in them through sufferings. Notice, he says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul helps us understand, and God, who inspired this, helps us understand that when we see evil and sufferings in this present time, 
they are against the backdrop of a glory that is yet to be revealed to us and it makes the sufferings incomparable. They are not worthy to be set up alongside this great plan of revealing God's glory. Now, what is the illustrative explanation of this? Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. God has designed in the course of redemption, including a fallen creation for a time, he's designed for for it to produce, and it is producing even in his creation, an anxious longing for this revealing of the sons of God in glory. There's this anxious longing for it. This way that God wants the glory to be revealed in anticipation before it's actually revealed in all of its consummation. That we long for this great revealing and the creation itself longs for it. Why is the creation made to do that? Verse 20, it was subjected to uselessness. In other words, it's not in its current fallen state, um, doing all that God has created it to do. It is subjected to this time period where it is not fulfilling all that God yet wants to fulfill with it. So it was subjected to the natural evil or the effects of natural evil, the fall of creation. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in this great hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's marvelous here that you have this illustration all around us in what's natural to us, a fallen creation, beautiful as it might be, but in turmoil though it is, science will call it the Laws of thermodynamics, everything's breaking down and spinning out of control. That's right. It's subjected to such uh, existence by God because he wants the creation itself to be always anticipating. There's always this answer that has to come. If it's fallen and God wants glory from it and he's ultimately wanting it to, to accomplish these great things in eternity for his glory, including his perfections, then... He subjected it to the need for redemption. He put it into a condition where it too will long to be restored. And just as Christ is the restoration of sinful human beings, the creation itself will be in this state of anticipation. And we see it doing that. It's groaning, verse 22, and suffers the pains of childbirth together right up to the present time. And not only this, but we ourselves, verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We, we have the Spirit inside of us calling us to God, calling us to eternity, calling us to restoration, having come to God. But our bodies aren't, aren't there yet. So there's even in us this, wow, can't we please reach it? Can't we get there to this 
revealing of God's glory. There's an anxious longing in us that comes because we exist without the full marriage of an inside restored and longing for God to match our outside. The outside doesn't match it yet. The outer man is decaying. The inner man's being renewed day by day. There's, it creates this tension. And the creation is also in that same tension. It wants to reflect the glory of God. Say, so why is that an important argument? Because he says, we eagerly await for our adoption as sons for the redemption of our body in hope we've been saved. If hope, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. It hasn't arrived yet, but if we hope for what we do not see, then with perseverance, we face the suffering, we face the groaning, we face the fact that the outside doesn't match the inside, and it's painful, and we see it in creation, and it's painful in the creation. But in the meantime, what is it we do? We persevere in this hope. And then this, verse 26. And so in the same way, in the same way that there's this anxious longing and persevering in the meantime. The Spirit also comes alongside our weakness and He intercedes, verse 26, for us with groanings too deep for words. So the earth and the creation are groaning, longing for the glory of God to be reflected perfectly. We are groaning because inside we know glory now by faith. We understand the glory of Christ now. Our eyes have been opened to this great redemptive plan that's coming and been promised to us. In the meantime, we suffer and we get beat up and bogged down just like the creation. There's a tension growing in us. And we persevere through it knowing that the Spirit himself is also groaning on our behalf. That is absolutely strange, isn't it? The Spirit of God given to us as the down payment of our full redemption is groaning on our behalf because redemption isn't here yet. We don't see it yet. So with perseverance, we eagerly want it. We eagerly wait for it. And while we're waiting, the Spirit comes alongside us when we suffer, interceding for us with the same kinds of groanings, and yet groanings that actually translate to the Father in ways we couldn't do it. Notice what he says. We don't know how to pray as we should. Right. When we're groaning, we cry out to God, please stop the suffering, please. That's, that's our first prayer. Oh, oh my gosh, suffering, anxiety, distress, trouble, and as we grow in our faith, our later prayers are more, God, reflect your glory. As we mature in our facing of suffering, Lord, accomplish your purposes, but sustain me in it. I need help. I, those are our prayers. But the Spirit of God, who knows the deep things of God, verse 27, and searches the, minds of the, the mind of the Father, he groans for us in the presence of the Father in an interceding way, that brings God's purposes to fullness in our suffering. You say, is that what the text says? Yes. Notice, he intercedes for the saints according to God. 
or we might say, <clears throat> as some translations put it in there in, in italics, something along the lines of according to the purposes of God. And we already know that's for his glory to be fully reflected. So the creation's groaning, waiting its redemption. We're groaning because of the tension. We've been adopted as sons, but our outer body doesn't reflect it yet. And the Spirit takes our ignorant prayers, limited prayers, in suffering, and, and he groans before his heavenly Father, knowing the deepest things of God's purposes. And what is the result? Verse 28, we know then that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Which, by the way, goes all the way to glorification, our full glorification, verse 30 says. So back yourselves up for a minute and just think about it. The... The way a Christian lives in light of the evil around us is not to ignore the evil of it intrinsically and not to act as though there isn't a moral justice coming. It's not to uh, go through suffering without human agony and anguish. Uh, we are made in the image of God. We agonize over things. We feel things deeply. Our thoughts are not stoic nor unconnected or disconnected from visceral life. Everything is experiential in our life as God made us that way. So when you experience suffering, even non-Christians who don't understand any of this grieve in the common grace of God, but Christians know and understand that evil is here and will be dealt with, and it is indeed affliction, and it is terrible, and it is a violation of the moral character of God so far as evil doesn't emanate from him, and yet ultimately we come from the experience of suffering and working together through the real humanity of it we then begin to work our way back into our theological framework. Wait a minute. I know that through my tears and my limited prayers and my ignorant prayers, I know that while I'm suffering, I persevere. I know that I am to believe that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory to be revealed through it. And even though right now I'm in agony and I'm in tears, even though I am feeling the weight of it and the loss of it and the pain of it, whatever the source of the suffering is, I know that I am, t I am while I'm praying, Lord, take it away, while I'm praying for relief, while I'm praying that evil would not befall those I love, while I'm praying for someone I love who's suffering to come out of that suffering and be healed and restored so that I don't have to suffer the loss and they don't have to suffer the pain. While we're praying for all of that, our theology goes f much further than that because we live imminently and near in the suffering, but we also rise above it with these transcendent realities. 
that the Spirit is also groaning in the tension of this life compared with what's to come. And while we're persevering, he is taking our prayers into the inner Trinitarian concern and groaning them out in an intercessory way so that all of it is worked for our best, and that is to say not our best merely in this life. In fact, that would be the least of Paul's concerns here. It's worked out for the good that God has purposed, which is according to his good character, his perfections, his wisdom, his infinite insight, his purposes, which cannot be thwarted, nor, nor cannot be, can they be diminished. They are always right, always best, always perfect. We know that God causes all of these things to work together for that good. That good. Not just the immediate good, but the daily good afterwards and every bit of our existence until we come to that full glory. That's why we persevere. We persevere in the hope that this redemption path that we're on, God is using all these things for this great, eternal, and infinite reflection of his glory. And it is for the good of those who love him and are called according to this purpose. Now that is difficult to believe in the moment, but the reason it's difficult is because we are of flesh and weak. We sometimes want relief rather than restoration and redemption. We often at first want a path without suffering when even this text here says that having been given a spirit of adoption, it is through suffering that you come to this reality. Look back in the text. He says that we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, heirs also. These are magnified terms. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We sometimes pray the path of least resistance. And, and of course, it's not sinful to pray uh, that people would be blessed and healed and uh, that suffering would be short-lived. It's not wrong to pray, Lord, keep me from the evil one, keep me from some kind of suffering that would cause me to lose my faith, uh, protect all of that. Those are in the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew 6. At the same time, we cannot come to God and pray as though suffering is meaningless. We cannot pray as though suffering doesn't accomplish anything. Of course not. Anytime we are swallowed by fear and 
doubt and suspicion and unbelief, we have to return to texts like this. We know these things. We know that God causes all these things to work together for good. He was at work in our life before we came to Christ. He was at work leading up to our conversion. He is at work through every detail of our life right now. He continues to be at work until our redemption is complete and on into eternity for his ultimate glory. So this is crucial then when we think about uh, the struggle we have with the meticulous sovereignty of God and the things that befall us or overtake us uh, as they appear to us. They, they just happen. You know, natural evil just happens. You know, earthquakes just happen. And natural disasters just happen. And uh, something falls out of the sky and takes, uh, takes a, a part of your life away. These things uh, to the unbeliever, they're random. To you and I, they're unexpected, unforeseen. At the same time, we're told all over Scripture that when you encounter various things that were unforeseen, they're not unforeseen by God. They're ordained by God. Before there was even one of your days, he ordained all of them. And in Psalm 139, it doesn't mean he just said, you know, Jerry's going to exist from this birth date till this end, and therefore I've ordained his number of days. No, he has ordained every single thing about all of those days before there was even one of them. That is humbling truth. It's humbling. Back for a moment just real quickly to... We're just about out of time. We want to talk about this a little bit. But when he says we know God causes all things to work together for, for the good, he says to those who love God. This is just a great statement here because it reminds us that when you are drawn to the things of God in suffering, it is evidence that you are his child. When you're drawn to him to understand his truth, when your faith is stretched and you're pulled to try to understand, when your heart is not suppressing who God is as he's revealed himself and, and you're indifferent or hostile to him, but your heart is drawn to understand these things, you're drawn to the Spirit's uh, work inside of you to give you comfort. You're drawn to statements and truths given by a friend who's speaking the truth of God to you, and you're drawn to it because in it you're trying to extract the marrow of comfort that will come from it to make sense of the suffering that's happening, to solve your doubts, to swallow up your heart that is wandering and set on its heels and in anguish, when you're in the throes of those things and your heart is pulled to understand them, it is evidence 
that you are one for whom these things are true because you are one who loves God. So you know you're a legitimate child by God's divine power. Yes, he takes us through suffering in his grand ordained plan. Yes, he wants to reflect his glory through it. You and I are in the middle of the anguish of it. But we know he's working it out for good to those who love him. And so when you're drawn to understand that, it is evidence that he has redeemed you. He's the one who put that love in your heart for him. He gave us the spirit of adoption. He makes us cry out to him as our Abba Father. He's the one who pulls you to the intimate relationship that says, please help me understand this. He's the one that does that. It's a sign that you are a legitimate child. Now, I know we go to him and pray that the suffering would end quickly because it hurts. It's painful. But he says here that it works together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? He says it in verse 30. He's predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, and he, is, he has glorified you. You're on your way to glory. So there's something about this particular suffering that has a unique way of manifesting and reflecting God's glory now and will all through eternity. You, you may never know this side of meeting Christ face to face. Until then, you may not know for your own human, finite, daily satisfaction, what every one of those little purposes for glory look like yet. You may never be able to say to someone with full explanation, oh, I know exactly what God was doing. Sometimes we see the fringes of things, don't we? Like uh, very often the stretching of our faith producing endurance, right? James 1, it says, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, when you grow spiritually, you're, you, you now have a greater strength and endurance. So you're, you're not lacking what you used to lack. You're not fully complete yet, but the suffering does do this work. And so when someone's asking you about it a couple years later, after whatever it is you experienced or went through, and the emotional agony and trauma is not as fresh, and it's faded and subsided, and given way to some wonderful things you're learning about being with your God, intimate with your God, praying to him more, reading his word more, understanding truth more in depth, you say that to people. Oh, the, the purpose of God in this trial was... Just absolutely, I know what he, what he was doing. He was doing this. He had to teach me this. He had to help me experience this. And all, all of that would be true, and yet it would be but the fringes. Because glorification is deeper and more unfathomable. The reflection of God's glory is eternal and infinite. What he has purpose to do through it, the fringes of it are all you and I uh, glean this side of meeting Christ. Just the fringes of it. 
And yet it, it is interesting that even though you may only know the fringes of it, those lessons are wonderful. Um, the writer of Hebrews would say it this way in Hebrews 12, all, all discipline seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. That's right. Discipline meaning just paideia, the, the pressure that is intended to increase our virtue. It's not just discipline for weakness or sin, although that's included in the term in that passage as, as verse 12 and following tell us. Straighten, straighten those limbs or you, you could have them put out of joint. Make sure that you, you come under the discipline and learn the lessons. But the term can be broader than that, just trials and difficulties and pressure to increase our virtue. But he says afterwards, those who've been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So righteousness in your life is a lesson learned through trials and agony. Peace within, a stronger perseverance, a greater endurance. These things are revealed in Scripture. And yet they're but the fringes of this plan of God. They're but the fringes. But they do prove that you're a legitimate child. In fact, anyone who's without that kind of discipline, anyone who in a trial is not pulled toward God, but is in, in a sense indifferent or hostile to it, uh, anyone in a trial who has nurtured unbelief and has no faith in him, anyone, anyone who apostatizes and says, I reject that, I, I would never worship a God who allows that, I don't believe the Bible anymore. This is a sign that you are not a legitimate son because you're without his discipline that pulls you toward him, says the writer of Hebrews. He disciplines you as legitimate sons. And so afterward, it yields peaceful fruit, but it's yet but the fringes of all he's accomplishing. The comfort of which, in Romans 8, Paul says, so who can separate you from his love? <laughs> and what does he say? Does, he mentions all moral evil and natural evil in this list, all of it. Um, sure, like the prophet said, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. That's right, people are coming against us with moral evil, um, there's distress in the world, what about tribulation, distress, persecution? Those are moral evils coming against us. What about famine, nakedness, and peril? That's natural evil. What about the sword? That's, that's evil that's hostile to um, our walk with God and hostile toward righteousness, and they want to take our life, of course. But in all these things, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The whole point of a theodicy is the love of God in his people through Christ to reflect his glory in restoring his people to himself, to magnify his love, to magnify his character and his, his majesty in his love for his people. You can't be separated from that. So Paul said, I'm convinced of it. Not death, life, angels, principalities, anything present, anything in the future, 
no power, no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. You can go to the top of the universe to the bottom. You can go side to side as far as east is from the west. You can look at supernatural powers and natural powers. You can look at moral and natural evils. It doesn't matter. I am convinced that none of it can separate me. So even your theodicy, your justification for God's meticulous sovereignty in light of the fact that there's evil, there has to be a greater glory reflected in the love of God for his redeemed people. And that affects you and me directly. Because when we suffer, I would even say it this way, what we teach those in our sphere of influence about how to suffer is crucial. And um, you cannot excuse unbelief. And people are watching you, your wife, your children, those in your sphere of influence. You cannot excuse unbelief. We should repent of unbelief when we suffer. And, and yet, it's a tendency to excuse it. Well, I mean, what do you expect? You, just, you know. And, and interestingly enough, Job's wife said that, curse God and die. And he made no excuse for it. I mean, I understand, Lord, she's a woman. She just lost everything. I mean, how, could, how could we ever accept that? No, he didn't say that. He, he said to his wife, shall we not accept adversity from God if we've already embraced all the good things from God? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him, trust him. Right. He's, he's not excusing unbelief or a lack of faith or skepticism. Do we have a lack of faith? Yes. Do we struggle to believe? Yes. But it's important that we take a stand in our, in our understanding of the purposes of God and we take it by faith. You're not going to find earthly answers all the time to make logical sense, reasonable sense in your human existence for what God ordains in suffering. You have to get off that track and plug in these greater glory realities as God has revealed them. And when someone asks you to defend that because they do not fathom how you can do that, you, you must tell them these things come by humble faith. And of course, in and of myself, I can't persevere. But I persevere by the Spirit of God why? Because he loved me. He's taking me there. Suffering is an act of his love for his greater glory. And uh, we, we may not be there at the beginning, but that's the mature perspective that we're to head toward. Our God works all things together for good. And the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared, so... Man, so important for us to pass that on to others when they see us suffer. And at least give testimony to the times when you didn't believe it, and the times when the Lord and the Spirit strengthened you to believe it, and the times when your faith grew and was stretched and sustained. 
The people who've suffered greatly, whose faith is sustained, is proof of the power of God to sustain one's faith. It's exactly the lesson God was teaching Satan when he accused God of hedging Job in in ways that didn't really test Job's faith. And so God let him have at him, and God was proving one main point to Satan's foolish accusation as a created being. When I grant faith to someone and sustain it with my power, nothing in a fallen world can take that away. Because it's not sustained by the human's power. It's sustained by mine. I granted it. I sustain it. So, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk about it. Let's ponder and uh, if you have a question, let's try to address it. Not easy. Yes, Ben. So uh, when we're talking to someone who they're, they're a believer, they claim to be a believer, they have suffering in their life, but they say, God, God can't be in control of this suffering because the suffering's too great. Uh, God is good. I can't worship a God who allows suffering. What's, what's a good way to respond to that? Well, the, the, the first thing, of course, is to ask them what they mean um, by the terms they're using. I, I think it's important to let them flesh it out first before an answer is given. Sometimes if you assume what they're asking, you could end up answering something um, that isn't quite putting its finger on the pulse of their burden. So I like to ask them what they mean. So in a, in a case like that, I, I might ask them, you know, are you saying that it's hard to believe in God who allows suffering or you reject a God where suffering exists? You reject him outright. If their answer is yes to the first one, I just find it hard to believe in a God, um, you know, then I can move into, well, what is it you, what is it that you find hard to believe about him? You say he's good and he has revealed himself to be good, but why is it that evil exists then? What is it, what is your problem with that? Is it just because you're hurting or you don't imagine that evil could exist and have a greater purpose in it? So you're going to, just begin to ask them to unpack for you what the struggle is. Quite often when, we've had, when I've had those conversations with someone who professes Christ at some level, even though I might suspect they're an unbeliever, I often find that the conversation isn't really, uh, they, they're not really struggling so much in the moment uh, with something they know the Bible teaches. It's often they're, they're struggling with concepts that they've come to accept that the Bible doesn't in fact teach. And I wanna get there. I wanna to get to the place where I can help them understand, well, are you sure that's what, the, what God says about himself? It sounds like you're thinking things that God 
is, and I'd like to know where you got that notion, because it doesn't square with what I see said in this passage that God has revealed. Sometimes that'll take you down the path, well, I don't believe the Bible is written by God. I don't believe it's a divine book, it's just written by men. Now you're into an whole other discussion. Uh, if they do assume that it's written, uh, that it's divine, then I can help them understand some of these concepts they have are not actually what God reveals. And that can take us down a, a good path uh, to correct some of the things they've been poorly taught or, or have uh, not really sought out in Scripture. If their answer to the question is, no, I just don't believe evil should exist uh, at all, and then I, I might go to the issue of worldview. Well, then what do you suppose uh, we ought to do with the fact that exists? Because if you say it shouldn't exist, it's meaningless. I would say, then why are you giving it meaning? If you suffer and you're angry about it, you're giving it meaning. It means something to you. If suffering is merely random and uh, meaningless, then I, I'm sure you'd agonize, but it wouldn't cause you to think anything about God or a God in control of it. You're obviously assigning meaning to this, and you want somebody to solve it. Why is that if it's meaningless? You're, you're admitting that it has meaning. You just don't like the fact that it exists at all if, in fact, there's a purpose for it. You don't want to accept that there's a purpose for it. So I'm asking you why you're assigning it one. Sometimes that can lead a person um, into a good conversation that, that makes them realize, oh, okay, yeah, I am, I am actually putting blame on uh, a God I, I don't yet believe in. I don't believe he exists at all then. I guess suffering is meaningless. They sometimes, when someone else is suffering in their family, will assign meaning to suffering. Uh, even in the open theistic framework that said God has no way to control the future, suffering, you don't tell a person God has a purpose in it because that's not comforting. What's comforting is that God is resourceful enough to bring good out of it. But he, he, he didn't bring this about. He didn't ordain this to happen. The open idea, open theistic idea, is that God doesn't have control over that, and that's supposedly more comforting. Of course, it isn't more comforting, because a universe that's out of God's control as to suffering means that not only can I suffer this, but there is no ultimate purpose that will be good, and there's no guarantee that he can do anything with it. You say he's resourceful, but how would you know that? It just looks awfully meaningless to me. So sometimes people comfort themselves with blaming a God, but they haven't yet thought about the meaning they're assigning to the suffering by finding a God to blame. So I want to help them understand, could it be, could it be that the scriptures tell us that there's a purpose in these things that is far greater and far grander than the anguish that we go through in a fallen world? It also leads then to the most important discussion you can have. Why is there human suffering? Where did it come from? Where did natural evil and moral evil come from? If it's meaningless, then it doesn't matter whether you're suffering, nobody cares, nor should you. But if it has meaning, then it had to come from somewhere, so where did it come from? And of course, that's a discussion more about 
moral evil existing and the fact that things need to be make right, made right. Like when you're suffering, you're telling someone, when you're suffering, don't you think this ought to have something made right in it? Of course, you don't want to see humans suffer. There's something wrong about seeing children suffer. Something has to be made right in all that. So who's going to solve the problem? And now you're into discussions of redemption and that God's purpose is to, is to solve man's sin problem. Um, you go back to when sin began and why suffering exists, that it came into existence because of the rebellion of man. You're not even then talking about God's ultimate purpose in suffering. You're, you're talking about his ultimate control of it, but you're talking about man's culpability in our fallenness and, and why we need a redeemer uh, who is God. So, so again, um, and of course, timing is everything, Ben. Sometimes if somebody's weeping by the loss of a loved one by the bedside, those discussions that they're having come later. If they're just asking me in the agony of their heart through tears, how can God allow this? I usually just, you know, put my arm around them, grab their hand and pray for them. I might pray theology in my prayer as I pray for their comfort and that they'd reach out to God. But I'm not going to answer questions in some more sobering sense until we've had time for the emotions to settle. Uh, that's a common experience for pastors. We'll be in ICU, that life is ebbing away, and the loved ones, both Christian and non-Christian, are standing there. And I've, I've had angry relatives who can't stand the presence of a pastor anyway, and they're angry about what's happening, and they don't like it, they don't know how to deal with it. And in their fear and anger, they make some comment and bolt out of there to the awkwardness of the rest of their family when a pastor's present and their loved ones just passed. Well, you don't look at all the other relatives in the anguish of that moment or go chase that person down and say, here, you need to understand God is sovereign. <clears throat> you understand and enter into the agony of a family and the agony of human suffering. And prayer is your tool right then and there. Because you can pray theology in the moment just as sobering as you can speak it. But the ethos of the moment is much more acceptable because you're beseeching God on their behalf. You're an intercessor. Sometimes you have to ask them, can I pray for you? Even to the hostile one who just ran out of the room, may I please pray for you? I'd say nine times out of ten, please. Or just nod, they just nod. I've had, I've had someone say no, but it's rare, and I pray for them anyway. So, <laughs> you know, I'm doing it. They might not be in the room, but, but you know, a touch in the agony of human suffering and a prayer for them on their behalf, even if you pray big things, big theological things, as, as well as tender, near comforts, um, God uses that mightily even before you answer questions. Later in the waiting room, two days later, over a saint, a, 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 a family member, they would like to live, and, and they, they've been given a terrible prognosis. They heard your prayer two days earlier, and they come up, someone comes up to you, hey, can I, can I ask you a question? You know, when you were praying in there, you, I, I want to know. Why, why does God allow these things? Now you're into a different dynamic, different ethos in the moment. Uh, 
Oh, what are you asking? If you're asking uh, why there's human suffering, there's several answers in Scripture to that. God's greater purposes is one of them. Man's sin is another. All subsuming in the greater purpose of Christ to reflect God's glory and deal with suffering. He's our only hope. But what is it you're exactly asking? So you can be in a different moment. Um, always asking the Lord to use those times to uh, unfold his mercy and his love and his glory and his greatness in the person and work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Even to the Christian, we need to be reminded of that. Has God not saved you? Has he not redeemed you? Can anything separate you from his love? Then, then this is a moment of suffering that isn't separating you even a little bit from his greater purposes. So we all need that reminder in the agony of it, all of us. So he even uses hostility in a pagan's heart to later draw him to Christ. That was the case with me when I angrily railed at God at the death of my first son. He used the memory of my fist shaking in his face to crush my pride later upon reflection when the Spirit was working. So, And it was my father's testimony and witness to me during my hostile post the death of my son sort of weeks and months that God used later to remind me of, of what I had read so many times in his word and heard so many times, but had no power to see it and believe it. I was crushed in all of that. What a hypocrite I was, shaking my puny little fist at God. <laughs> and he was merciful to me. He could have left me in that. So you never, you never know, even the most hostile person in the midst of suffering, you know, God can use it mightily that way. That was a very long answer to your short question, Ben. Sorry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Keep us grounded in these truths. Please tie them together in ways I couldn't make sense of them for us in our hearts as we contemplate them and minister to our own hearts in your truth and minister to the people who, around us who need to know it in the midst of their suffering. Most of all, Lord, strengthen us as men to pass these things on to our family because if our children don't learn to trust you from seeing your power in our lives as you help us persevere with groanings too deep for words, then we will, we will have spoken things we do not live and we will have manifested and reflected a powerless gospel. So strengthen us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.